Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Excuse me, may I have some more? We are the Foodcast with an Insatiable Appetite. My name is Brad Kramer. I am joined by my sidekick, Christine Strubel. Hey, Christine. Hi, Brad. How are you today? The joy that just emanates from you when we do these shows, it's palpable. I'm doing good. We have a jam-packed show, and the good thing about that is it means we have three interviews on this episode. And it also means that you and I do not have to talk as much. So it's a win-win for us and uh, presumably for anybody that's not related to us that's listening to this episode. But anyway, before, Wait, um, on this episode, you go, go ahead. People who are related to us are actually supposed to be listening because, you know, um, my kids tune out because it's not a TikTok video. So do we need to start a, excuse me, may I have some more TikTok channel? Uh, apparently, I, I need to Fun with food. condense this to like the two minute highlight version with some bad um, music in the background and maybe a dance. You, you, could you, do you have some dance moves, Brad? That I don't. I'm too left feet. And I think I mentioned that to uh, Hillary Farr last year when, uh, she asked me if I knew how, how to do the time warp after I asked her the same question. Before we jump into our interviews, and I'll talk about those interviews in a second because I have not mentioned who we have on this episode, and I do think it's very exciting, it's very exciting who we have. Um, you were at Universal for their annual uh, Mardi Gras celebration. And the last time I went to Universal Florida, Orlando, for their Mardi, Mardi Gras celebration was 2001. So it's been a while for me. But I remember the parade and the throwing of the beads and just what a cool, festive environment. What is Mardi Gras 2022 like at Universal? And it, it runs through March, doesn't it? So people still have a chance to, uh, to get there. It actually runs through April. Perfect. Uh, They've extended it even longer uh, this year, but their tagline is, uh, and I'm probably not going to get it exactly right, but it's uh, wilder, louder, spicier. So yes, the parades are back and throwing of the beads, the new... Um, that sounds like the, the tagline for a Shakira concert. It, well, it, it might be. I there, there is a lot of hip shaking going on, although not <laughs> quite much Spanish sung. Uh, there are, there, there's good music and people dancing. So that's a good thing. Matthew uh, and William, if you are listening to this, mom's being cool. That's like 
the third pop ref, pop culture reference that's current and cool. Just so you know. Oh, well, they, um, <laughs> maybe some people's world, but probably never in my household. But okay. that's a whole other story. Um, this year's theme for the parade, it, it's uh, planet Mardi Gras. So it, being that we're quite close to the Space Coast and Elon Musk likes to eject things into space every other day around here. Um, the, the floats that are in, uh, conjunction with Kern studios from, uh, New Orleans, they have a very big space theme and they go through and, uh, everything from planets and, uh, visions of what different worlds would look like in space to astronauts and spaceships and even a space monkey, which pay attention if you go to Universal and make sure you can find the space monkey. That was the big tip from Brian, the um, creative director of this year's event. And then even the space theme and the floats themes are transformed into the food and um, different offerings that they're doing for the Mardi Gras event. And and what a lot of people like now, even if they don't want to stay for the parades or don't know some of the people who are playing in the concerts, there's, you know, uh, over 10 different booths of food ranging from everything of a classic Mardi Gras dish where you've got some beignets and and dewy sausage and uh, a crawfish boil to um, some uh, flavors from Southeast Asia and noodles. And of course, there's a variety of desserts and, you know, everything you could think of you could probably get even some really cool uh, waffles, the Japanese-style uh, waffles, the, the bubble waffles with an ubi ice cream, which is the purple potato that you get from the Philippines. Mm. So very colorful dishes. It, it's a good time. You, you kind of have to go back a couple times to get uh, a taste of everything. So you highly recommend it to people? I, you know, I was really kind of uh, impressed with some of the food offerings that they did this year, where um, specifically it was instead of you see in a lot of theme parks, plant-based food means a meat substitute. Uh, Here at Universal this year, they're actually taking the plant-based idea by focusing on plants and they're very colorful dishes where you get the big, bold flavors, but it, it's got romesco and it's got radishes and it's you know got all of this stuff in a big bowl where it it's hearty and filling and pretty to look at yet there's not a big hunk of beef or chicken on your plate. You know it's funny because you mentioned veggies and crawfish boil and um, that's the 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 perfect lead in to share with you and and with people listening. Um, a company called Seymour Meats and Veggies. Um, I recently had the occasion to chat with the founder of the company, Cara Nicoletti, and um, that interview will be on our next episode. But I also wrote a feature about her for foodsided.com, if anybody wants to check that out, uh, kicking off our Fierce Female Foodies series. It'll be ongoing. Um, Seymour Meats and Veggies is the only nationally distributed meat company owned and operated by women. And again, founded by uh, Cara Nicoletti. It's a veggie forward meat company. And not only is the product delicious, but uh, 
their mission is to make it easier and more fun to eat well, which I know you're always a fan of. Um, I, I personally, if you ever watch her social media accounts, they're pretty engaging. I mean, sometimes sausage isn't necessarily the first thing that a woman would go for, but she makes it kind of really engaging and fun to, to explore something a little different. And on top of that, um, Cara and Seymour Meats and Veggies is also changing the game when it comes to creating a sausage product by combining humanely raised meat with up to 35% fresh vegetables. I have had the uh, pleasure recently of trying a couple of Seymour Meats and Veggies sausages. Um, the chicken parm being foremost in my mind since it is one of my all-time favorite dishes. And it's not limited to, they're not limited to what they offer. They have seven unique flavors, including loaded baked potato, Bubby's chicken soup, broccoli melt, and the aforementioned chicken parm are just some of the, the great flavors that they offer, which is cool because you can also have your meat and veggies without sacrificing any of the deliciousness. And if that thought is appealing to you, Christine, or anybody listening, you should try Seymour. And you can do that and get a little bit of a discount by visiting eatseymour.com. That's E-A-T-S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com. And use the code EXCUSEME, E-X-C-U-S-E-M-E, one five, and get 15% off your first order. So on this episode, Christine, we have, as I mentioned, three great interviews, uh, starting with Jonathan Waxman, who I spoke to. And Jonathan was not only phenomenal, but very generous with his time, which means I wound up with more interesting content that I had than I had planned for or hoped for, which means the portion of the interview we will air in a moment is just part one of that interview. And part two will come up on a uh, future episode of this foodcast. Um, in this particular portion of my conversation with Jonathan, uh, we talk about uh, his food roots, people that influenced him, his journey. And then we get into a little bit about uh, food and TV, including going back to the early days. It's a compelling listen as far as I'm concerned. I hope uh, people who are listening feel the same way. But that's not it, because coming up later in the episode, we have a conversation you had with Roy Choi, who people may know as the first food truck superstar. And Roy talks to you about his new Broken Bread series on Taste Made, which um, he goes into great detail about uh, why he wanted to do Broken Bread. And you guys talk about that and how important it is to him to look past people's colors and opinions and philosophies and and come together as one um, over the table. And it's a, a recurring theme that we've had you and I have both had in conversations in previous episodes with other people. So that's a fun conversation. And then we'll wrap up the show later on with a conversation you had with the uh, uber popular Elton Brown. And I found that to be fascinating because you guys spent a good deal of time talking about pet obesity and his uh, quest to end pet obesity through his partnership with uh, Hills Pet Nutrition. And making it even better was the fact that not only did you chat with Alton, but his dog, Scabigal, was along for the conversation. And that's always fun. So your conversations with Roy Choi and Alton Brown will come up later. 
right now, I've got my conversation with Jonathan Waxman, unless you have anything you want to add. No, I'm ready to pull out a chair and sit down and at the table. Here we go. Here's my conversation with Jonathan Waxman. For people who don't know your backstory and, and <clears throat> only know you as you know, the chef that they see or whose restaurants they eat in now, your personal journey took you from the trombone to the kitchen. How did that road develop and, and who were some of your early culinary influences? Um, well, the, the story of my trombone to food is a long story. We, we don't have to uh, okay. <laughs> delve into that right now it would take too long. Uh, but suffice to say, at age 25, I found myself um, selling Ferraris and working in a bar as a bartender. And one of the, um, the owner of the Ferrari dealership's wife was what we would call a foodie. We're talking about 1974. And uh, she said, you seem to really talk about food a lot. Have you ever considered being going to cooking school? I said, well, uh, I I'd actually taken a, a class from Richard Grousman. I don't know if you know who he is. No. He has a wonderful man in New York City who uh, has a whole culinary um, school and he mentors a lot of high school kids wonderful guy but at that time in the early 70s he was the cordon, cordon bleu uh, paris's representative of the united states he would go around giving cooking classes and i i took one of his classes at macy's anyway so uh, this woman said would you like to take cooking class i said well why not i mean what the hell and so the head mechanic ferrari mechanic and i enrolled in a six-week class with a woman named Mary Risley at the Tom Marie Cooking School in San Francisco. And Mary was that um, sort of very by-the-book, uh, Cordon Bleu uh, trained um, chef, and she ran her classes very formally. And I don't remember much about it, but I, I had a good time. Uh, <laughs> at the end of my six weeks, she called me up and said, Jonathan, do you want to come and have lunch with me? I said, okay, what does she want from me, this woman? <laughs> and so I went and had lunch with her, and she said, you know, uh, I don't know if you realize this or not, but you seem to have an affinity to cook. And I said, well, I like it, but well, I, don't know, I don't know what that means. And she goes, well, uh, I've signed you up to a cooking school in Paris called La Varenne. It's the Ooh. first year. And um, they have a spot for you that just came up. And if you can muster it, it's $6,000 for a year. Um, it's in Paris. It starts in um, November of 1976. And I was actually wasn't even 25. I was 24 at the time. Um, and uh, no, I'm sorry. I was 25. And anyway, so <laughs> I went to my parents and I said, you know, this is what I want to do. My father kind of laughed. He said, well, you know, we have some money. Here's, here's the tuition and good luck. And by the way, when you get back, are you become, will you become the chef at Sizzler restaurants? My father, <laughs> my father had a very wicked sense of humor. Um, and so in 1976, November, I found myself in Paris. I owe a lot to Mary Risley. I owe a lot to um, Stephen Griswold, who was the owner of the Ferrari dealership's wife. And uh, my parents were allowing me to go to Paris. So. And the rest is history. 
Yeah, it was kind of somewhat serendipitous, somewhat, uh, you know, I think at that point, no one in America even knew what a chef was. Right. You know, we had, you know, lots of cooks on TV like Julia Child and, um, uh, uh, let's see, who else is on? There was, you know, the Frugal Gourmet was there. Uh, Graham, what? Graham Kerr. Graham Kerr. Who I adored, uh, and there were some other, you know, uh, I think Jacques Pepin was around a little bit. Um, not really much on national TV, but he was doing stuff for uh, Planned Parenthood around the country. And um, but that was it, you know. Uh, Gourmet Magazine was the biggest thing in those days. Uh, you know, this is you know the seventies, right. and before internet, before. Before Americans kind of woke up to the fact that we could make good food. Well, it's interesting. You must have read my mind because several of my upcoming questions you you sort of touched on there. I chatted with Jacques Pepin right before the holidays, and I asked him about his decision in the early 60s to turn down an offer from JFK and Jackie Kennedy to be the White House chef in favor of taking a job at Howard Johnson's. So it's sort of that Sizzler's Howard Johnson's analogy. Um, and his response was that chefs were still anonymous and that he thought working for Hojo's would be better for his career. So as one of the original celebrity chefs, how did that status inform the path you carved out for yourself as your career progressed? Well, I have to tell you that I don't think economics entered into the equation at all. Okay. Um, I don't think that um, I even thought about, you know, that this career would do anything but, you know, get me a little bit of walking around money and allow me to exist. I don't think anybody at that period had any delusions of grandeur. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I got back from Paris, from France, actually. So I worked in France. Um, I worked at Domaine Chandon in Napa Valley and, um, you know, there's a lot of hoopla around that. And, you know, I knew, obviously knew about Chez Panisse and I had done my sort of due diligence. I, we gone to the library and read about all the great restaurants in New York and New Orleans and you know other places and um, but they were all you know they're all European owned places you know mainly French and Italian um, there was you know obviously some you know American owned restaurants that were of note but um, none of them seemed to really be specifically chef driven other than places like Lutes and um, you know, Caravel and uh, a couple other places in New York, which were chef driven, um, chef owned. And um, most of them were sort of, you know, like sort of institutional style restaurants that were very good and had a very strong, what I would call continental style of service. Um, my getting into it was sort of formed a little bit on what I had seen in Paris and around in France which were chef-driven restaurants that sort of threw out the rule book a little bit. And because I'm from Berkeley and I don't really care that much about rules, that really appealed to me. And I like the idea of the whole Michelle Gerard, you know, idea of, you know, taking a scoffier and modernizing food in that respect, um, sort of get away with the old presentations, the old, you know, sort of heavy sauces, um, Food that was lighter, more digestible, more seasonal, uh, you know, 
and that style of food. And, you know, lo and behold, the one restaurant in America that was really, you know, the forefront of that was Shaping Eats in Berkeley. And I was lucky to go there in, you know, in, in the set late seventies for a short period of time. And, um, you know, it really was indelible that experience at, at Chez Um, and that whole idea that, um, you have this whole history of food, you know, whether it's French, Chinese, doesn't matter. You've got a whole history. And Alice was very much a historian. Um, she really studied a lot she read a lot um it was all really about um understanding the history and then taking the history and trying to figure out how it, to make it work right in the 1970s and that was i think that's really something that people don't really talk about a lot but that's where i think her great genius lies is that she understood um all the all the all of the things that had happened before, whether it was a, from you know the home cook or the professional cook, it didn't really matter. She kind of synthesized all those ideas, but she wanted to make it more um, more fun and more um, more modern, but not modern for modern sake. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. and it's funny because in hearing that, she mentioned to me, and I had the pleasure of talking to her late last year too, that her roots and and her vision was in, also informed by the time she spent in France. Yeah, I think France, I was very lucky to be in France. You know, it was right after the 1968 sort of, you know, real cultural revolution, you know, that, that was student-driven. Um, and, you know, the Bolberg Museum was being built. And um, But what was more important was that one day I woke up and I on the newsstand was this magazine, I still have it, Perry Match. And it's uh -huh. a picture, picture of the Eiffel Tower. And in the front is Valerie Sardestang handing the MOF medal to Paul Bocuse. And behind them are all these three, three, two, and one star mission chefs lined up in a V behind them in front of the Eiffel Tower. And I said, well, God, something's going on here. I don't know what, what it's going on, but they're putting chefs on a pedestal. And that didn't seem to be the case in America or other places. Right. So um, in the back of my mind, and I kind of knew that, you know, the wave was coming. I didn't realize how it was going to come or what was, what was happening. But coming back to America, you know, no Americans were thinking about going to cooking school at that point. You know, right. CIA was, CIA was, you know, just getting up and running. Uh, Johnson Wales just coming up. But most of the schools were technical schools that were very good in community colleges, uh, state universities, et cetera. And they taught more of a sort of a food from either a technical point of view or a hotel uh, career point of view, um, which is all very good, but it wasn't really what I was thinking about, which was becoming, a, you know, having my own restaurant as a chef. Right. That was kind of my idea. And crazy or not, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and then I discovered after Chez I went to a, a Michael's restaurant in Los Angeles, Santa Monica. And Michael was this brash 25-year-old kid who had done the same thing I did. He'd gone to school in Paris that, um, and had worked in French restaurants in Paris and other places. Uh, but he had a, an American sensibility. So he wanted to merge his 
French experience with his American sensibility. And that's how Michael's came about. And it was kind of making up the rule book as we went along. We didn't really have a rule book. Well, we, we had, what we had was we had all the stuff we stole from everybody else, which is, you know, all these really great restaurants in LA and New York and et cetera. So we stole as much as we could. And then I started as the head chef started to think a little bit out of the box and started incorporating things either from Italian restaurants. I started making my own pasta um, from, you know, uh, Asian restaurants a little spattering of this and that from Asian restaurants. But more importantly, it was about the ingredients. Everything was about the ingredients. I was very lucky when I was a Chez Panisse to have, you know, get whole baby lambs from Sonoma and, right. you know, you know, whole salmon from um, right off the dock in, you know, Bodega Bay or uh, beautiful, uh, you know, Arico Vera string beans from a farm in the, in the Central Valley, great asparagus from Central Valley, you know, wonderful peaches from Brentwood, California. And seeing all these things, those things became more inspirational to me than the actual recipes or the philosophy of food. So the other part of the equation was when I was at Chez Panisse, we cooked everything over a hearth and, and over a grill. Right. And at Michael's, we did the same thing. And so I think essentially that formed the uh, idea of what California cuisine was about, that things came like you know, start, they started in the backyard, started off, you know, from a grilling point of view, you know, from a casual, familial sensibility, you know, working out in the, in the cooking in the backyard and then sitting down at a picnic table. And that was kind of what I had in mind, as opposed to the formality of, you know, French restaurants and two and three star mission restaurants, which I adored, but they seemed just too hard to try to accomplish. And beyond my my capability. I don't think I could have ever survived in one of those kind of restaurants. So we crafted restaurants in our own kind of vision and it worked strange enough. I don't know why it worked, but people seem to gravitate <laughs> towards it. Um, and you know, wine was a huge part of the puzzle. Um, you know, but the service was much more familial, much more sort of, you know, friendly and less, you know, you know, it was sort of more laissez-faire. Right. Um, and I think, and I think those things that, you know, the attitude towards the, the service, the wine list, uh, you know, the food that was centered around the grill, ingredient driven, but always with a French sort of culinary foundation, but also rather gathering things from Italy and other places. Um, that was what sort of, I think was the cornerstone of what my kind of food. Became. And obviously it, it led the wave of what became very popular and innovative in, in American dining at the time. Yeah. I think it struck a chord with people. Cause I think people, you know, all of a sudden woke up to the fact that, you know, it wasn't for the wealthy that anybody could have good food. Anybody could dine in any restaurant. So you, instead of, you know, having to put a, coat and a tie on and be formal and spend a lot of money you'd go to restaurants and get a great meal but you didn't have to feel that you know you were um had to you know spend your entire week's pay and doing it that was right. part of the puzzle and the, and the other thing too is that um 
people just became a little fanatical about it. And I, I was always sort of puzzled by that, but I understood my enthusiasm to find, to go to the next best new restaurant. That was exciting. Right. It was a little bit like, you know, the next great song by, you know, the who, or, you know, uh, next wonderful painting by Frank Stella. You were excited to go to the, to the gallery and see that. Well, that was what the same thing happened was happening with food. So I think that, um, people were becoming, um, their, their cultural horizons were expanding. I think right. and food and food was a great part of that. Um, and you know, California wines were becoming extremely popular and, and people, everybody wanted to get in the wine business, uh, you know, from either from a growing point of view or, or making wine or selling it, uh, you know, people design became a huge thing. You know, the design of restaurants became a very important part of the puzzle. Right. Um, locations became a, a big part of it. So it sort of mushroomed in a very quick uh, fashion that from the time I came back from France in 1977, you roll forward, you know, like to 19, you know, four years later, you know, Wolfgang, five years later, Wolfgang opened Spago in Los Angeles. Right. So you think about that, that sort of was kind of the, the bellwether mark of what was going on that, you know, when Wolf opened that restaurant, I think um, other people like myself said, well, if Wolf can do it, maybe I could do it. So he really kind of, he really kind of was a great um, trailblazer in that respect. Uh, But there were other people that are doing it at the same time. It wasn't just Wolf, but Wolf, obviously because he was in Hollywood, he had the, you know, the, the press behind him and he had the, you know, the media behind him, he started to appear on Good Morning America. Right. Um, and I think his, he really was the kind of the first, um, you know, chef owning his own restaurant, but being in the media's eye in that respect. And I think he was probably more important. Other than, there's other people like Paul Prudhomme and, um, and people like that who were obviously very important at that time period. But Wolf, just he was in the right place at the right time with the right stuff. I grew up watching Graham Kerr and Julia Child on PBS, who you referred to earlier. And the PBS food show in the 70s had a very defined niche audience. Can you share your thoughts on how television ultimately changed the food industry in subsequent decades? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, I think about this. There's, you know, there's there's some real um Pivotal characters, obviously Julia Child, Graham Kerr, um, you know, were the you know the the ones that. But remember, Julia started in the sixties. I think she started right, in, yeah, or the early like sixty one. I didn't want to age myself that badly. Well, but it's okay. Um, but- you know, age is fine. Um, and then um, I think that the first you know people appearing on on like Wolfgang and Alice was on those shows and. And other chefs, um, Jack Papin started to become more of a of a TV chef, um, and then it was Emeril Lagasse. Emeril was the one that sort of broke the ice from you know from this 
guy who was the chef of this wonderful restaurant, Commander's Palace in New Orleans. And all of a sudden, he's on TV and he's got a great shtick. He's funny. He's passionate. He's got um, a band playing in the in on the yes. set with him, you know. And there was other people that were doing stuff that were that was equally as entertaining. But I think Emerald was kind of the one that kind of set the pace. And then there was this um, young kid that used to work for me named Bobby Flay. And, um, you know, Bobby went from, you know, from a very humble beginning, working, he worked for me for a long time. And then he went off on his own and started his own restaurants. And all of a sudden, he just hit the sweet spot in terms of what the Food Network needed at that time. Right. Um, you know, there, you know, but there was people like Sarah Moulton. There were other yes. people that were doing shows that were wonderful. Uh you know, Mary Sue and Susan Finnegar, yep. you know, two hot tamales. There were, uh, there was a lot of people that were doing TV at that time, but I think Emerald, Bobby, uh, were the two for me, the, at least for young chefs, I think they, they, I had a guy last night come to the restaurant and said, you know, I, I really, re I really love what you do. And as TV wise, Bobby Flay is it, is it for me. Right. And it was just interesting to hear this guy who's I guess in mid thirties, you know, aspiring chef wants to have his own restaurant. And Bobby was that one person that he felt uh, he resonated with in terms of, you know, how, you know, the TV represented chefs. Um, but then obviously there's, there's tons of other people that, right. you know, that, that, um, that we could talk about. But um, I think those, those three people, Wolfgang, Emerald, Bobby, and now it's now you've everybody. Got, everybody. <laughs> well, you've got lots of great people. You yeah. know, um, you know, Guy Fieri represents a whole different thing. Rachel Ray, uh, you know, you have, you know, uh, obviously, you know, uh, Tony Burden had a whole huge influence on everybody. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people, you know, I think obviously, you know, Gordon Ramsay has a huge influence on, on, on the current state of, of affairs. All, all this stuff is great because it points attention to our business. Right. And that so, to me, that, that to me is really what it's all about. It's not really about, you know, are these guys, are they, you could like them, you could not like them. You could have your opinions one way or there. It doesn't matter. They're up there. They're successful. They're doing a great job. It just puts the shines the spotlight on food and 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 gives people an aspirational sensibility that maybe I could do that as well. Right. And I think that's that's it for me. You know, it it gets people into the business that normally years ago wouldn't even have known about the business. In your personal opinion, this is a chicken or the egg question. Chicken and the egg question. Does Food Network become what it has turned into without Emerald as its early flagship, or was that destined to happen regardless of whether there had been an Emerald on that network? I think that you, you have, someone has to break the ice. Someone else, someone has to hit the North Pole, you know, that I'm sure there's other chefs that were really, you know, um, hankering to get on TV and, and prove their metal. Emerald's Emerald's really 
the right person, I think. Um, because number one, he came from an incredible restaurant. Right. He had credibility. Um, he was American, but he seemed to embrace everything. I mean, he wasn't, he, he didn't, he didn't pigeonhole himself in terms of what he wanted to cook and what he wanted to serve. He wanted to have fun. I think that's what really did it was he showed everybody you can have fun and cook at the same time. And it goes back to the Julia Child thing. Julia Child had fun. And, and it was inspirational because she was having a good time, even when things went wrong, yeah. you know. And I think that's that was one of the biggest thing I always loved about Julia is that she didn't care if things went wrong. Speaking of Julia, I'm of the opinion that your impersonation of her is even better than Dan Aykroyd's. Um, any chance you do a quick command performance? Oh, no, not right now, but thank you. I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, I, I was very lucky to know Julia, um, not as well as a lot of my friends did. Um, but, uh, I was very lucky to spend some time with her and, uh, uh, she just was an amazing person. I, uh, this is a funny story, but when I was at La Varenne, she was somehow tangentially associated with that school through Ann Willen, who was the owner and directrice of Leverett. And so one day I was in class with uh, Ferdinand Chambret, the wonderful uh, chef mentor to a lot of people. And I was I was just like dicing shallots or something. And Julia Child walks in the room and I go, oh God. <laughs> and she went by me and she says, very good skills, very good. And walked I- off. And I looked and I go, I almost died. You know, uh, of you know both embarrassment and pride um, that Julia Child, you know, took the time to sort of, and and that really set a tone for me about who she was, because I was just this, you know, you know this nondescript person, right. you know, dicing shallots in this cooking school in Paris, and um, she knew the importance of 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 mentorship. She she knew what education was all about she intrinsically knew how to touch people um and that's what i love about my business you know i think those little tiny little moments are so indelible right you know i think they 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 i was reading uh, john george's um he has a little autobiography he did i think he published in 2019 or 2020 i can't remember Anyway, it's a small, small book, but I recommend everybody to read it because number one, it's it's really poignant and and wonderful. The recipes are great, but he talks about those little moments in the kitchen where he had the light bulb went off in his head about how hmm. how to do something or how to, how to act in the kitchen or how to act in a restaurant. There was little things that that people do that. I have a friend that says that you find one good teacher in your life and, and that's all you really need right? You know, for, for, you know, to, to inspire you to, to study well. And I don't know if that's true or not, but you know, those little small things that John George talks about and you can see the excitement on the written page about how, you know, I mean, he was at, at Loisis in the South of France and they did everything. I mean, like they didn't, they didn't have the lemons even out. They had to pull them out of the fridge. The fish had to be filleted. To, you know, it was insane, crazy, because, you know, uh, 
the chef wanted everything so fresh and so perfect and so right right at the last second for the customer to really enjoy. And John George loved that. He loved that idea of making things so um, almost perfect. He liked that perfection. He liked that that uh, that sensibility. Now we all know in a restaurant situation that's very hard to do. Right. Well, it's near near to impossible. But it it was the same thing when I was a chef Denise. We tried to do that as much as possible. I know that Wolfgang drives everybody crazy because he wants things cooked, even for you know the Academy Awards for you know. You know, tons of people he wants things cooked to order. Those kind of things stay with you, and I think they they mold you and they they make you a better cook. So excited! I can't tell you what a big show we got for you tonight, folks. Emerald Lagasse here. Welcome to Emerald Live. Big treat. Promise you that. You know, there's a very very special lady in my life who I'd like to pay tribute to tonight. We've been. Uh, We've all invited her into our kitchens for cooking lessons over the years. She's taught us how to make a roux without lumps, how to whip egg whites for a souffle. She's taught us how to make potato pancakes, you name it. It's unbelievable. She's one of America's most important culinary figures, certainly this century's most admired woman, and someone I'm very proud to call my friend, Julia Child. And we're back. Um, hope you enjoyed my conversation, part one of my conversation with Jonathan Waxman. Um, I just love as an, an older guy and one who's a serial nostalgic, it's, it's always fun, Jonathan and I being able to talk about the likes of Julia Child and Graham Kerr, who I grew up watching because my parents grew up watching it on PBS in the seventies. So it's always fun to, uh, to go back to the roots of food television. Um, but food television con- continues to evolve, Christine, and that takes us to your conversation with Roy Choi. So what do we have to look forward to regarding his iteration, his, um, vision of presenting food television in a way that is constructive, educational, and engaging? Well, I think he's looking at trying to share more about the people behind the food, whether food, you know, is the reason that people, you know, sit down and, and maybe start the conversation. We need to like, look at who is making the food, why are they making the food and how that impacts, not just, uh, the moment where we all enjoy it, but you know, the bigger picture, whether it's, uh, you know, farming or community or food waste, a variety of things uh, he tackles in all of this. And it's just you know, a different perspective. It, it's time to, when you sit down and watch a show, it's take a step away from the gazillions culinary competitions that are on every day and, and take a moment to reflect. And I think that's what he does best. Cool. So instead of us trying to describe said interview, let's. Uh not waste any time and get to Christine's interview or conversation with chef Roy Choi and learn more about his broken bread uh, show on Tastemade. I've had the pleasure of watching a couple of the episodes from the upcoming season. And, and I looked at a lot of it and, you know, there's this common thread that we all often think about with food 
that it's a connector, especially as we sit around the table. It's, it's the bridge that kind of brings, you know, different people and different communities together. But you do a really interesting job of explaining that, you know, although we connect at the table, we need to find more ways to communicate outside of that finite space. So I'm curious, do you think that this upcoming season is a way to get people to spark that conversation beyond just sitting at the table? I hope so. That's the purpose of Broken Bread. That's why we're, you, we use food as the storytelling device, because obviously we don't shy away from the topics. You know, we don't shy away from the, uh, the power of, uh, of the broken topic itself, you know, and and the importance of it. We don't, you know, we're not tiptoeing around things um, or beating around the bush. So, you know, if we were to just talk about these things straight up, if, if this was, you know, uh, a news program, if I was, if, if I was, this was a CNN show or something, you know, like, and I'm just going right to the dirt, and like talking about these, these things are, you know, heavy stuff, heavy topics. And um, so we, we try to make sure that food is the through line so that we're not creating any divisiveness. Also, you know, also we, we spend a lot of time in pre-production trying to find and, and, and share the people that I thought the world would really, really enjoy meeting. You know, they're the real heroes. And, you know, Broken Bread is a place and a platform that a lot of our voices don't get heard. I think they're the, the, the true imbalance within just within America is that we really don't hear the true, the whole story of anything. You know, um, because just as a as a as a minority in this country myself, I already know that you're you know most of the stories that exist within the lives of my own and my community and the communities that I'm involved with never are being told on primetime television ever. You know, so you know we're just trying to be a show that kind of like tries to bridge the gap a little bit and bring some balance and, and some information. The reason I'm so confident about it is because I saw it with my own eyes going through the food, uh, the modern food truck revolution with Kogi. You know, I grew up within this community, within the, this, this food, within this environment. And later in life, I had the opportunity to be a, a lunch truck, a lunchera. And from that, I already know growing up that these things were were stereotyped just like we were as people. You know, they were labeled as dirty. They were labeled as, you know, diarrhea trucks, roach coaches. You know, this is, this is you know, if you eat this, you're going to get sick and all these things, right? Um, but it just took a little, a little break, a little curveball in storytelling to break through and show that we're all human, you know, just because my skin color is brown or just because my language is not English doesn't mean I'm less of a human than you. You know, it doesn't mean my food is dirtier than yours. And what it allowed people to do is finally approach lunch trucks and taco trucks and street vendors and see how delicious and how amazing culture is. And it just made the world a better place, I think. You know, that's just one small example. And so Broken Bread is another is another step towards that. And um, also a uh, final point on this thing is that I see it every day in the restaurant outside of the talking heads and the, and the rhetoric and the politics and everything as a restaurateur and as a chef, 
I see it every day when people come into our restaurant and I feed them or on the streets and I feed them. We're able to, we're able to break down any walls within, between each other. And we're able to just share, be together, love each other. We could have totally different points of view on any, on life. Um, but in the restaurant environment, everyone kind of leaves their weapons at the door. It's very medieval in a sense, you know, like we leave our, we leave our weapons at the door and we come in completely vulnerable and completely, you know, uh, open to each other. And I wanted the show to be like that, to be like a restaurant, you know, where everyone is welcome. Uh, there's food for everyone. There's no shortage. Um, and everyone eats. And that's kind of what Broken Bread's all about. Well, and, and you gave a lot of information in, in that. But one of the things that I often struggle with, especially as, you know, I look at food and the restaurant industry and the evolution of people wanting to explore culture and flavor, that there is this difficulty right now of appreciating culture, yet not appropriating culture. So how do you get to that balance where it doesn't cross the line where it becomes, and, and you talk about this in a couple different episodes, gentrification or uh, muddling or dwindling down of the things that make certain um, cultures special? Well, the only way is to, is to put the people that represent the culture, that come from the culture on the screen, you know? Uh, there are many ways to do it in, uh, you know, in all the different, you know, facets and labyrinths of forms that we have as communication as humans. But specifically, as far as this show goes, um, is to make sure that we're, we're being honest and we're, we're being true in representing who is, is truly behind something. Because the, the problem that we've had as a pop cultural society is that we have gatekeepers that are usually decided by what, whatever organizations or producers or this or that or investors that uh, these gatekeepers become the, the representation of this culture that is too exotic or too far off. And so you have, you have someone that is basically not from that culture that's, that, that sanitizes it all the way down to what is considered palatable. And that's literally and figuratively, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and then what happens in, in, in that is that we, especially as immigrant cultures, communities of color, we get subconsciously labeled as primitive, as little less than completely developed. When you're actually poaching the culture itself from us, and then you're, you're putting new packaging on it. And so what Broken Bread is, is, is not to fight that and not to be mad about that. You know, especially us as minorities, we go through that every day, man. You know, mm -hmm. like, it, 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 you know, we put that stuff on like we put pants on. You know, <laughs> like we're, we expect it. But, but with Broken Bread, we're just trying to, like, take a step forward a little bit and put, the, put real faces on the screen, real stories on the screen and show you, hey, we're not that scary, you know? So, like... What do you think you know, will take like, take for someone to you know, like? You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of us. Uh -huh. So, what is it going to take to, to to get to that point where it's not a situation for someone in your position or or anyone else to say, 
it's not like putting our pants on. Is it that there's better representation on the screen and people actually listen or or is it something else? Well, well, there well, there are many levels to that, right? You need legislation, you need new laws, you need uh new distribution. Uh you you need to uh you know, you need to reform the power of capitalism and 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 distribution. You need to figure out like who can access not only healthcare and food and pricing and nutrients. So there are a lot of things like grown up things that have to be done. But for me, storytelling is a big part as well. So there are a lot of tangible things that I can, it can't just be storytelling, but the storytelling can be can be the head of the snake. You know, it can definitely be that because what it can do is it can get people to think about it, to see it, to go beyond you know, the stereotype or the imagination of what they thought it was and hear real voices and see real people and not see just the caricature of them, but see their true character and their true personality um, and really understand that, uh, you know, that we're, you know, we're all human and we can, you know, like, and, and the, again, the only way to do that is to put more content out there in, in, forms that you know my dream is you know and it's i hope i can take broken bread with that dream all the way um but is to get to prime time network television you know is to is to (laughs) to sway things so much that within the next 10 15 years that we're starting to see not only these faces and these cultures, but these stories and the topics and what's important to us as, as viewers and what we consider entertainment to go to th- those pendulums being swung a little bit, you know, because only then is when we can start to appreciate and understand and, and tune into what's really going on. And then once you do that and you start to like infiltrate pop culture to be more of like, you know, of this type of content, then what's going to happen is it's just naturally going to be a, a, a reality where people are going to say, wait a second, all these beautiful shows that I watch, all these beautiful characters that I love, all of these beautiful human beings and, and food that I love to be a part of, wait a second, their children don't have any books in their schools. They don't have Wi-Fi. They can't get, they can't, they can't access a piece of fruit. There there's all of the food is being, that they're eating, uh, that they're able to access, that they're eating within their edge in their school system, is 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 a product of lobbying and chemicals and preservatives, and we're basically killing people before they can even get a head start in life. That's un- that that's unimaginable. That that that's unacceptable. And then you, then because of storytelling, people are starting to understand that shit is real, and that's really for me what broken bread is about. Broken Bread is about showing the love and the work, just the future of this industry. We got to put value in the people that are behind the scenes. Exploitation should not be normal. It just shouldn't. It doesn't have to be just taking from, but taking care. That's the revolution. The delicious revolution. The delicious revolution. <laughs> you need a prop agenda against a propaganda. There we go. <laughs> we're breaking bread. And we're back. Hope you enjoyed that conversation that Christine had with Roy Choi. Um, I love, regardless of whether it's an interview you, or, you do or I do, 
there's a discernible difference um, when our interview subject, the people we're talking to, the personalities we're engaging with, are passionate about their topic. And that's not always the case. A lot of times, it, you know, it could be a product promotion or it could be their 13th interview of the day. So they're just sort of at their end. Um, I love hearing the passion in Roy Choi's voice about Broken Bread and what he's trying to achieve through the show. Most definitely. I mean, it, it, when you see someone who makes it, like you said, a passion project, it, it's authentic and, and people can, um, maybe if that wasn't their first choice of a show to watch, the enthusiasm for it will encourage them to put it on. Yeah. And that's constructive television too, which, you know, you mentioned the, the myriad of food competition shows. The, this is a, a refreshing break from that kind of food programming. And believe me, I, I love that kind of food programming and I know you do too, but uh, this is a refreshing break that makes you stop and think, teaches you something along the way. And there's always a place for that on the food television schedule, I think. Agreed. Cool. So our final interview on this show and um, one that I also enjoyed listening as I prepared it for the show was a conversation you had with Alton Brown. As I mentioned, you guys talked about his work um, on behalf of or with Hell's, Hell's, Hills Pet Nutrition um, on their mission to end pet obesity. So that was fun to hear about. And of course, you referenced uh, in your conversation with him his Good Eats cookbook and food television in general. Um, and then you also talked a little bit about his tour that he has been on for much of the year, which I think is r really interesting and different because you don't often, I know Ina Garten will occasionally go out and, and do tour dates, but I, th I get the impression that having not seen it, um, Alton Brown's um, Beyond the Eats live show is a lot more interactive. And before I ask you about him and, and about the, uh, what you know about the Beyond the Eats, I should mention to people that as you listen to this uh, show, to this foodcast, Alton has a bunch of upcoming dates on this tour, um, ranging everywhere from Greenville, South Carolina to here in Atlanta up to the Midwest in Madison, Wisconsin, Columbus, Ohio, my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and we'll be on tour um, all through March and into April. So if you are interested in getting tickets to see a show that uh, earns raves, um, you'll want to go to altonbrownlive.com. And in the interim, Christine, what, what? insight can you give? Well, I mean, if you are going to go see Alton Brown live, uh, you know, one thing that everyone can do, or even if you just want to test your foodie knowledge, is take the actual test that's on the website. Now, they don't give you the answers, but I will honestly say I thought I was knowledgeable about food until I took that test and I felt woefully uh, pathetic afterwards because you just don't realize that there are, you know, Alton has been known as not necessarily an encyclopedia of food, but, you know, kind of this guru who blend, magically blends 
really good cooking, really great flavorful food with food science. Because when you get down to it, there is science behind cooking. So when you, you know, you watch him on Good Eats or you read the cookbook or you see him live, it's that really perfect blend of fun and education that no one else has ever really been able to master. So we're hitting the road with a new culinary variety show, Alton Brown Live Beyond the Eats. What's it about? Well, it's definitely about food. It's about comedy. (laughs) I hope. There's music, maybe a puppet or two. The word I think is shenanigans. Yeah, culinary shenanigans. Alton Brown Live Beyond the Eats, coming to a town near you. And with that, let's take a listen to your conversation with Alton and Scabigail Brown. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. And I, I see we have a special Hello. guest as well today. <laughs> yes. I have, uh, this is uh, Scabigail. This is um, our rescue uh, that my wife and I have. And she's the, the, the reason that we're here, um, so to speak. Well, I, I know that you, you know, you started this partnership to, for the beginning of the year to talk a little bit about good nutrition for our four-legged family members. But I'm kind of curious because when we had our dog who has since passed, it was very hard for me to kind of gauge, are you hungry? Not hungry? Oh, if I feed you food, you love me more. It's not like when I deal with my teenage sons. They tell me, I'm hungry, give me tons of food. So how how do you kind of bridge that, you know? And I especially within this promotion? Well, I think that um, first, I, I want to say that those of us who are pet parents that, that deal with weight issues in our pets, we, we are not uh, the exception to the rule. Um, as you know uh, from, from the press release, 90% of us that have um, overweight pets don't realize it. Um, and that was a kind of shocking number for, for me to see. Um, and, and so figuring out whether there's an issue is, is a big part of this for, for us. Uh, my wife and I noticed that Scabs was snoring more than usual. So we did some internet searching. Uh, we found uh, in petobesity.com at the, the hillside, we did the body assessment test um, and realized, or tool rather, and then realized, wow, we really need to go to the vet. And that, so we went to our vet, which has always got to be a big step of, of this process. Um, and deciding, okay, what is this animal's ideal weight? What what is going to allow her to have the best life? Um, and now now we know that, and now we have tools to to get to that uh, through the uh, science diet that we're using. But to directly answer your question, it's not about when they're hungry that we care about. It's when we train them to eat. That, that matters. And one of the big problems, especially during the pandemic, what my problem was, is that I over-treated her. It wasn't that we were ever really overfeeding her, but giving an animal treats feels good. It makes us feel good. Um, and during the pandemic, and look, she's in a test kitchen all day. Um, it's real easy for things to hit the floor and it's real easy for employees to give them things. So that's about us. Not, it's not about training the, the dog. Dogs are very easy to train when to eat. Cats are too. You know, meal times fall at very specific times of the day. They are creatures of habit. And it really is up to us to kind of make them stick uh, to those habits with, with healthy um, uh, feeding times. Scabs gets fed twice a day. Um, and she also, we save out a little bit of her kibble to give her as treats during the day because she does like to have a treat. I like to give treats. But we just want to make sure that that's not human food. Because a lot of folks don't realize that the, the calories in human food 
food can get really out of whack for animals. She loves cheese. But you know what? A one ounce piece of cheese adds up to the calories for an entire meal for her while not giving her the nutrition that she needs. Um, and, you know, when we're talking about nutrition and things about like gut health, you know, and keeping a, a good, healthy digestive tract, not to mention what, what any given animal needs for, for good bones, uh, good hair, um, and to kind of express their, their, their genetic code in the best way possible. That takes a very scientific approach to nutrition. So in, I, I look at like the analogy because I think back of when my kids were little and we all think, oh, well, I'm going to, you know, grow my special stuff and blend all the food and serve them what I eat. But for a dog, it's not the same. So, you know, the occasional little kibble piece is fine, but we don't want, you know, whatever your dog's name is to hoover the ground. Um. <laughs> Which they will do. They, absolutely, they will do. Um, Scabs is way down low. She's like a Roomba. She can she can absolutely do that. Um, you're right, though. We don't need to be and should not be feeding them what we eat. Human diets are very different. And listen, I have done a lot of research about trying to feed or cook, uh, make dog food for her. But the truth is... It really takes experts and it takes people that are really focused on the science of what animal nutrition really is. I've decided to leave it up to the experts. Am I going to tell you that a piece of chicken won't occasionally hit the floor uh, or bacon? No, accidents happen. But by and large, um, I'm, I am going to stick with what, you know, with, with the scientific approach to feeding this animal. And I have to say, uh, Scabs has been on this uh, diet ever since the first of the year. She's already lost. Um, I think it's not weighing time until the end of the week, but I think she's lost over a pound. Um, and she's also playing a lot more. Um, and, uh, you know, used to be we played tug of war for five minutes. Now she's wanting to go 15 minutes. So we're already seeing a pretty positive effect um, of, of taking this action. So I, I, just, I can't overemphasize, you know, vets, go to your vet, see what your vet says your, your animal ought to be weighing. And I think a lot of people are going to be very, very surprised by that. And then using online tools like in petobesity.com, there's just a wealth, treasure trove of information there that can help people to figure out what's really going on with their pets and what kind of action they could be taking. Well, and, and I know that Scabigail goes with you to a lot of places, whether, you know, on your tour or when you're filming stuff. So do you kind of see a difference when you have a routine where, you know, everything's in place um, to make sure that you can gauge that, you know, Scabigail is feeling well and, and, and responding to everything similar to like if I travel you know, things are different or um, I know when I'm feeling good back and forth. I think that everybody knows their animal um, and we got to pay attention. We really need to pay attention to the patterns that they set, you know, as pack animals. Um, dogs want to be with us. Um, and dogs want to, um, they want to feel good. They, they want to be their, 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 their best self. So I, I really think that at least with her, because her schedule does change. She does go on tour with us. She does come to the office every day. She travels on airplanes. She does all sorts of things, but we try to always feed her the same amount of food now. And we do measure it very carefully at the same time every day. We try not to have a whole lot of playtime or, or, you know, a jiggle room on the, um, on, on when the pet feeding actually happens. And then we're very careful to 
ration the treats. We lay out what she can have as a treat every day. And when that's gone, it's gone. You know, a lot, a lot of families have a tough time because um, animals will play mom against dad. You know, <laughs> it'll be like, well, I didn't get a treat from mom. I'll go get one from dad. We lay them out so that we know what she's going to get during a day. And when that's done, that's done. Now we try to reward her with things like playing with toys instead. If she comes and begs, uh, I've got a little toy that only stays in a drawer most of the time, and she gets rewarded by playing with that toy, which I think is a better way of showing her uh, showing her love than just dropping more cheese on the floor. Well, and and since you are back on uh, on tour right now, I know I believe you're going to head down my way to Florida here in February. Yes, February 9th. We yeah. start uh, in Tampa, February 9th. So what are you finding now that um, you're back on tour? I mean, your show is very unique, um, that it's, you know, part culinary, part music, um, just kind of an uh, overall different feel. But what are you getting from the audiences that you're seeing right now? Are they really appreciative to have have you back on stage? You know, more than that, I think that people are really appreciative of being back out in the theater again. You know, it's it's like eating. Um, it is something that uh, that draws people together, and people have really missed that. Um, and and even though you know there's still a lot, you know, everybody's still being really cautious because uh, there's a bug going around. Uh, people really do like being in that big room together. So I, I think more than anything, I'm noticing the kind of communal vibe of having a bunch of people in a theater. People are just really happy not only to be at but to be together in groups again. That's just something that I don't think you can remove from the, the human experience. We need it, to well, be honest. And, and, you know, a lot of people, you have a very wide breadth of audience because people um, come to you. I was speaking to, I was at an event last night and we were talking and it was, you know, they weren't cooks, they're not chefs, they're not big foodies, but they would sit there and religiously watch you and still watch, you know, even the older episodes of Good Eats because it was the entertaining educational. Why do you think that no one else has ever really captured what you do so well? I, I don't know how to, nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, I don't know. I would like to think that, um, first off, people do like to learn, but they don't like to be taught. Um, you do your best. I do my best teaching by attempting to entertain. And, and I think that if you can make people laugh, if you can get them interested, they will teach themselves. And then once they've done that, they appreciate what they've learned. So for me, education and entertainment are can't really be separated. For, I cannot do one without the other, nor would, would I ever try. And that regardless of what it is that I'm trying to do. Um, it's like, you know, the, with a stage show, do I hope people learn something? Sure. Do I mostly just want them to be entertained? Absolutely. Because that's, that's, always, that's always the key for me. Well, and, and when we look at the stage show, I know there's a lot of interaction and, and um, many people have tried to take your test online and um, have not quite done so well. I, I tried it's yesterday. Tough, tough quiz. Stop. Yes, it is. I, I, thought, I thought I knew a little bit about food and I was woefully unprepared um, for it. So is that kind of idea of always wanting to learn, always wanting to discover something that is woven into everything that you do? I think so. I, I, I think it is. And, I, and, and even if I don't think about it, because in the end, the payload, the, the thing that I'm actually trying to deliver, the, uh, the virus I'm trying to encode into something is, is typically knowledge of some sort um, and useful knowledge of some sort. So I, I, I think that that's, that's 
always there. It's just part of my uh, DNA, um, I, I think, as a as a communicator. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you get overtaken stop. by your sidekick. Um, but learning, which is, is you know, kind of. Um, Someone once referred to it as the, the the willful expression of curiosity. I'm just naturally a curious person, and I think people, by and large, are curious. Um, you just have to kind of feed that. So hopefully, that's what what my work does, whether it's on TV or, or whether it's on stage. But right now, I'm just I'm happy to be able to get onto a stage in a theater that has people in it uh, because I think that we've really been missing that that kind of experience. And um, as you go back on tour and um, say, since I know you're coming to Florida, um, what are you most looking forward to doing? Why I'm assuming you're on a tour bus this time. Um, are, are you hitting certain restaurants or looking for certain foods and stuff as you go? Um, I- Usually we just uh, take whatever people suggest when we're there. So we, we keep uh, our ear to the ground social media wise and whatever people say we should do. Because a lot has changed since I've been touring in that part of the world. So, you know, a lot of new restaurants, a lot of old restaurants that aren't there anymore, unfortunately. Um, so we're just constantly uh, kind of tapping the fans to ask them where we should go and what we should do. But because of our COVID protocols, most of the time we end up having to eat on the bus. We bring a lot of food in because we, we still can't really go out as much um, as, as we like. The Good Eats, the the final cookbook is coming out this year, which I'm, might make some of us very sad, knowing that it's the final cookbook. Uh, um, well, there's there's still going to be a greatest hits book, I think, but this will be the this will be the final of the of the new Good Eats books, and it's unique because it's actually got a season of Good Eats reloaded in it that wasn't ever made. So the uh, the shows were never made, but the recipes were, um, and those will be included in that book. So that makes it kind of special. And where do you think that food television is going to be going? I mean, I I see you on the Food Network often, and we know there's a plethora of culinary competitions that have kind of taken over the programming. But do you think there still is an avenue for that show which that can entertain and teach without it being, hey, you're chopped or, you know, you're out the door? I would like to think so. Um, I'm not sure that it's going to be on television per se. I think that will be something that is on streaming. One of the great things about streaming outlets is you can create long uh, story arcs and you can involve people in in pieces of time other than like 21 minutes. Um, So um, I think that people still really enjoy um, people really enjoy the competitions. I would like to think that there is still a market for more, I'm going to say thoughtful, um, more idea evoking kind of programming. But I think that that's probably going to be something that's done on, on streaming, uh, streaming outlets instead of uh, network oriented television. And is that going to be something that's led by con- you think led by content creators as opposed to a, a bigger marketing branch, maybe? Um, we'll see. I think the uh, um, there are a lot of outlets just for um, creators, uh, producers like myself, and then there are also uh, real initiatives that are uh, created by um, by larger organizations themselves. So we'll have to see. Well, I, hopefully we get to see more of you. And uh, I know and a lot. Less of Abigail. We'll be seeing less of Abigail. I do want to mention that uh, keeping up with with her uh, her Instagram will be a good way to know what her her weight loss journey is like. Uh, and and I, although I, I I may fail in my own uh, weight loss resolutions for the beginning of the year, I'm going to make sure that uh, that, that she doesn't because she's already feeling better. Well, I, I think we want to see lots of Abigail. Just maybe a a, a 
slimmer version of Scabigail. How's that? Slightly less curvy. Slightly less curvy. She's going to keep some of her girl curves, but but I know she's got to get ready for uh, for swimsuit season here. So, oh, that's yeah. right. Getting get everyone's got to get beach ready, right? Got to get her beach bod. You know, she's going to Florida, so you know, she's got to have her beach bod ready. Please, please convey to your 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 readers and, and followers. Go to your vets. Get get your get your pet really examined and figure out a weight loss plan. There's so many of us that don't realize that our pets are overweight, and overweight pets don't live as well, and they don't live as long. And we want them to be part of our family for as long as possible. We would. And we're back. Hope you enjoyed uh, Christine's conversation with Alton and Scabigail Brown. And uh, Scabigail was there for the whole interview, so she is it, Scabigail has to be a she, right? <laughs> Yes, Scabigail is a she. Okay, Scabigail gets equal billing, um, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, on on the interview. And uh, I again, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm sure everybody who just heard it did as well. And uh, as a reminder, if you want to go see Alton Brown's live show, Beyond the Eats, go to altonbrownlive.com. And uh, this is an uncompensated endorsement and uh, plug for for that live show. It's just something that uh, his fans are just absolutely raving about from city to city as they see it. So Christine, we have been so chock full of content and and great interviews on this show that we don't really need to talk much more, but I did want to uh, mention the tentative lineup for our next episode since um, I'm excited about it. And it ties back to the reference I made earlier about uh, our new, Fierce Female Foodie series on the pages, the virtual pages of foodsided.com. Um, because it, our next episode um, tentatively looks like it'll be a Fierce Female Foodies episode of, excuse me, may I have some more. Um, I recently interviewed Danine Arkinas, who is the executive producer and showrunner of Top Chef. And Top Chef will be premiering uh, within the next week, season 19. So that was, uh, only fitting that, uh, I finally got to talk to her and hear a little bit how the, uh, top chef sausage is made. Um, in addition, I am scheduled to chat with one of top chefs stars slash hosts, Gail Simmons for that next episode. And the aforementioned, I think that's the third or fourth time I've used aforementioned in this episode. And I apologize. I will <laughs> I will endeavor to do better. Um, Cara Nicoletti from Seymour Meats and Sausages, Meats and Veggies and her sausages. Um, I did the, uh, the written profile and uh, feature some of that uh, conversation on the next episode. So it will be a female-focused um, episode, chock full of fierce female foodies. And that's exciting to me. And I'm not even a female. So... It's a good way to kick off Women's History Month. See, and I did not know that. March is Women's History Month. So go read about a woman chef, woman author, woman something. But, you know, support people maybe you haven't heard of before and uh, see what they have to offer. It's time for us to step away and thank everybody for listening and encourage you all to please, um, whichever podcast platform you listen to us on, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your uh, podcast content, please like us. Please subscribe to us. It is free. Rate us, if you will. 
and tell a friend, family member, or countryman uh, about the show. We continue to bring you the the best interviews we can, and they're they're pretty darn good, and they're they're only going to get better as we go forward. And you get to hear Christine teach me about the different days and food and and national holidays. Well, not national holidays, but uh, educate me on uh, National Women's Month. Is that what you said? Yes, National uh, Women's History Month. Women's History Month. Okay. Until next time, I am Brad Kramer. Uh, she is Christine Struble. Christine, it's been fun. Bye, Brad. Take care. Bye-bye. May I have some more? Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.